0: You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. You may be seated. Welcome to Grace Community Church this Sunday morning. As you may have noticed, it's a pretty exciting day for us. Our children have been enjoying three days of teaching and singing and playing around the shipwreck that you see here. In fact, there seem to have been a lot of shipwrecks around the area based on the signs I'm seeing. So instead of a shark NATO, it was like a pirate ship NATO hit Wake and Harnett counties. And so we invite all of you to stay and continue to celebrate with us after church today as well. Um, There is a party taking shape out back, like kids were continually cracking the window to peek back there. There'll be plenty of water and lunch provided, Um, and we love the opportunity that VBS provides us to host folks who maybe haven't had a chance to worship with us before, and it's an opportunity for our families to interact together in ways that we might not otherwise get to, so it's a good time. Uh, My name is David, and I'm on staff here. My uh, lead pastor, Brad, is on an eight-week sabbatical, Uh, but at a dinner last week in his honor, we celebrated 20 years of ministry, which is really cool. It was a great time of fellowship, and we actually have permission now from Jim Acock to go ask him anything we want to know about Pastor Brad, uh, especially from his long-haired hippie days. Um, so when Brad returns on August 5th, if you haven't yet had a chance uh, to thank him for his, his years of ministry, uh, be sure to do that or to send him a note. Um, right now, they are in uh, France, which is an appropriate place to be during the World Cup final. Uh, So hopefully it'll be more appropriate, and there'll be celebration and not sadness. But we'll find out in about two hours. Uh, And so to finish out July, though, we're going to go ahead and spend two weeks in Isaiah chapter 40, continuing the series that we've been in for a while now. And we'll then move ahead to chapter 41 at the end of the month. And then in August, when Pastor Brad returns, when he's back in the saddle, he's going to lead us through a narrative passage uh, and 38 and 39, that we're momentarily going to kind of pass over. And so I'm going to give you a heads up of where we are as we work through Isaiah. And it's, it's really beautiful to see the ways that God leads us through his word. So for instance, the themes of Isaiah 40, today's message, are completely resonant with the VBS theme. But we didn't plan it that way. We began preaching Isaiah way back Months ago, it was not our great planning that lined these things up. It was God's plan for these resonant themes to happen so our families would have things to talk about this week. So while the kids have been considering the VBS themes and are back in the back right now even learning more, here we are discussing practically the same idea, Jesus rescues. So over this weekend, our kids have been learning Three key themes that all culminate in the same foundational answer. We already heard these this morning. When you worry, Jesus rescues. When you do wrong, Jesus rescues. Today's is when you are powerless, Jesus rescues. So children of different ages uh, respond to things differently, right? So at the fireworks this year, my six-year-old, Loved every explosion and was cheering the whole time, running around with his friends and all the glow stick stuff. Uh, Nobody ate one this year, so that was exciting. But my three-year-old sat in my lap making this face the whole time. But even last year, he at least looked at the pretty colors. So same family, different ages, totally different responses. And you can see Claire, our five-year-old, is watching, but carefully covering her ears. And then when my youngest, Jesse, was, was two, he would fearlessly jump into our pool, even without his swimmer on, which totally stressed me out. But this summer, as a three-year-old, he won't jump in unless we give him the incentive of a cookie. Same kid, different age, completely different reaction. And it's not just the kids of different ages, though. These themes will hit us, the adults, and our children in in different ways. So when you worry, Jesus rescues. And that word has a huge range of meaning. I mean, what do my children possibly have to worry about? Whether they'll get their homework done, whether they'll go to the pool or not? Actually, no. There are some real intense anxieties that our kids go through, that our children experience and process that we've just forgotten about. What we need to remind them of, what they need to hear and they've heard this week is that Jesus is able to rescue us from all worries. But for us, for the old people, what do we have to worry about? Oh, just the power, the water, the food, the health care, the mortgage, the rent. Maybe the nuances of a relationship or a marriage or the drama of, you know, your job or vocation. And sometimes we worry about uh, who's going to score first in the World Cup final that starts in 15 minutes. Or how hot it's going to be today. Or insert your worry here. But Seriously, if somebody scores, you have permission to interrupt my sermon and, and let me know. Uh, With our VBS themes, we have different ages, a whole span of age range of kids that were in here, Uh, but we have different reactions, but they all have the same answer, the same response from the God who created all of us. When you worry, Jesus rescues. So cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. And who of you, by worrying, adds anything to your life other than stress or pain? Psalm 34, 19 reminds us that though our afflictions are many, God delivers us from them all. Our kids have also been learning when you do wrong, Jesus rescues. So different age, different responses. Uh, you know The wrong that our kids are up to, my kids especially, daily, is maybe you know, disobeying a parent, lying to a sibling, a friend, or, or parent. Uh, certainly, these are significant things, and they're evidence of our sinful hearts. And children need to be reminded that even though there are consequences, Jesus has rescued us from the ultimate consequences of the wrong that we do. But then the wrong that we do, man, adults are really good at doing wrong and really good at hiding it. We've had our whole lives to practice, right? Every wrong, that we quickly hide or ignore or intentionally cover up becomes a snare, a barb on the wire, an entanglement that hinders our healthy movement. So hear this. Jesus rescues us from every wrong and from each wrong. So remember the gospel and the ways that it impacts all of life and each moment of life. Thank God for sending a rescuer. This morning while we're in here, our kids are learning that when you're powerless, Jesus rescues. Now, for some kids, they may have experiences that make them feel powerless. Maybe they realize they're not as strong as their dad in the arm wrestling match. Or maybe they realize that riding a bike is harder than it looks at first. Or maybe they realize that jumping off that trampoline wasn't a good idea, and this cast is really itchy, and there's nothing I can do about that. Or maybe they have a sibling who is sick and God hasn't yet chosen to heal and they feel powerless to help. Maybe you have circumstances in your life that have conspired against you so that you feel powerless. There's nothing you can do that makes any difference. And you're just being tossed by the waves one way and then the next and you're really nauseated. Maybe you've had the medical diagnosis that has blindsided you or a financial issue that came out of nowhere, and you feel absolutely powerless and it's frightening. So hear this. When you are powerless, Jesus rescues. Precisely when you are powerless, God's power is made perfect. So the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in you through the Holy Spirit of God. So when you feel powerless, God is able to rescue because of Jesus, because of his faithfulness to his people. So This is where things flow so beautifully with the themes of Isaiah 40. When you are powerless, Jesus rescues. But before I get to chapter 40 specifically, uh, I want to take a look at the themes that we have seen so far in Isaiah chapters 1 through 39. So far we've heard these things pop up again and again. God is sovereign. God is more powerful than any other nation. And God's enemies will be judged, and God's people will be saved. So, To this first point, Israel wanted a king so badly. They begged God to give them a king like the other nations. And God said, are you sure about that? Because it's one of those situations where be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. So Israel got a king, all right, they got a human one, and his name was Saul, and that's another story. After him, they got a man after God's own heart, right? David was king, but he was also a human full of sin, and after his death and Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel falls apart. The whole time, God is reminding his people, I am your true king, and I am sovereign, over all that I've created. And so this theme is repeated in Isaiah. God is sovereign. And over and over in the last several weeks, and we've heard the repeated theme from God through Isaiah to us, God is more powerful than in any other nation. So why trust something else over him? Yahweh, the creator of everything, has been actively and intimately involved with his creation and his people. And he can literally do anything and has proven himself over and over again. So why is Israel trusting in Egypt to rescue them in battle? Why does Ahaz try to manipulate events to create a coalition that might protect Judah? God spoke to them, and he speaks to us, trust me, I am more powerful. What are the consequences for trusting or not trusting God? That's the final theme we've seen over and over up to this point in Isaiah. God's enemies will be judged. And God's people will be saved. And these are not empty promises either. So my youngest, who is three, when he's playing, he'll often parrot things he's heard off Netflix or even from me. And and, and to his brother, he'll say something like, I'm going to get you. When ultimately, he won't. (laughs) Judah is twice his size, so it's literally an empty promise, an empty threat. He's just playing semantic games, right? God does not play semantic games. He makes some things very clear. And other things he purposefully leaves in mystery. But God has made it very clear that his enemies who may seem to be flourishing right now, or may seem to have everything they want right now, they will be judged. We get glimpses of this in the Isaiah text when we find that Assyria, who is flaunting their power and mocking God's people, is completely destroyed by Babylon within two generations. Utterly wiped out. And God's people They know that God's promises to save are true. He proved it in the Exodus. He proved it against Assyria. and As we move to chapters 40 and beyond, he will prove it again against Babylonian captivity as well. So here's what's happened as the narrative sections have unfolded here in Isaiah. Through chapters 1 through 39, the people of the southern kingdom of Israel, which is called Judah, They've dealt with the threat of Assyria. God has spoken words to Judah through the prophet Isaiah. God has spoken words to the nations around Judah through Isaiah. And God has spoken specifically to Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, during this time. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 has this geographic makeup in the backdrop. And it takes place in 740 to about 690 B.C., based on the historical reference points that Isaiah gives us that connect us to the historical records in the ancient Near East and that intertwine with the book of Kings and the books of Chronicles in the Old Testament. But the text of Isaiah 40 and beyond is a different kind of prophecy for Isaiah. In, 130, in 1 through 39, he's been forth telling. He's telling it like it is on God's behalf. He's firmly rebuking He's encouraging, he's delivering God's message for his people at that time with glimpses of prophetic words that also apply to the far future. But the text of 40 through 66 is foretelling. Isaiah is speaking to the children of God in the near future, telling them things that are going to happen and things that they're going to need to remember. So the content of Isaiah 40 through 66 is, is intended to address events that take place on or after 586 to the 530s B.C., and that's a significant jump that we want to note. Although as we read through the text, it flows pretty smoothly, right from 39 to 40 and beyond. So since we believe that God is a God who speaks authoritatively through his servants, the prophets, we recognize that the book of Isaiah, even with its huge time span, is written by one prophet, who spoke both for his generation and generations to come. Not only Isaiah, but all the prophets of the Old Testament were speaking God's words to the first listeners and to us. Both forthtelling and foretelling according to God's plan for revealing himself to us. So here in chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, there are a couple themes that are helpful to keep in mind as we move forward. This section of text deals with the reality of Babylon. As you can see, the colors have changed. The the borders have shifted. Some people have been eliminated from history, particularly the Assyrians. And instead, Babylon is the ruling power. So for the people of Judah, after 586 BC, Babylon is it. They forcibly conquered Jerusalem, which Assyria couldn't even do. And they even forcibly brought many Israelites back to Babylon across that desert. So you may recall this. Think about the book of Daniel that gives some personal stories that happened during this time. So Isaiah is speaking words that will purposefully address this reality. That Babylon rules everything. And they've taken God's people out of God's land. He's going to address this and bring comfort to God's people and yet a new and difficult circumstance. Because it's no longer the looming threat of Assyria, but rather the reality of Babylon's rule. So these passages in 40 through 66, they're written specifically to Judah with three helpful principles. God's people are in captivity because of their sin. The captivity proves that God is God because he predicted it. And God will redeem his people through Cyrus and other ways. Because in the same way that the sword of the Lord can be whatever God chooses, the redemption of the Lord can come through whatever or whomever he chooses. We see that beautiful picture in the lineage of Jesus. A lineage that we, were we writing the story, probably would not have chosen. But as you read through the people, that God used to bring the Messiah is beautiful, is redemptive, is powerful. But to that first point, God's people are in captivity because of their sin. There are consequences for sin. If you're in here and you have not figured this out yet, uh, you live in a blissfully ignorant world that I cannot comprehend. (laughs) But there are consequences for sin. Even as Jesus rescues us when we do wrong, there are sometimes immediate consequences and sometimes long-term consequences. God's people continued to sin, and the consequence was being literally taken captive by Babylon just as their sin had figuratively been holding them captive for generations. Captivity was a consequence of their sin. The captivity that happened in 586 and following proves that what God said has and will come to pass. He told them this would happen, and indeed it happened. So at Mikasita they always tell me, don't touch that plate, sir, when they set down the burrito with their gloved hand, and I touch it, and it hurts. (laughs) When I told my kids, they're a recurring illustration on BBS Day, clearly. Uh, When I told my kids, if you throw something at your brother, you will be disciplined, and they throw it, And then there's crying like they never had any idea I said anything prophetic over them. What God has said will come to pass. It has come to pass. It's going to come to pass. So the captivity of his people proves that he's God. The last principle for this huge section of Isaiah is this. God will redeem his people. He's promised to. It's similar to the previous principle God's faithful to do what he said, and and he made a promise to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David. There will be a Messiah, and eventually all things will be made new. So God will indeed redeem his people, and although we have no idea of how we would do things, God's ways are not our ways. And as we'll see soon, God chooses to use Cyrus of Persia to subdue Babylon and bring his people back home. Not the promised Messiah, not yet. Even though this return of God's people to the lands of Israel and Judah would be almost as formative as the Passover and Exodus, it was not yet time for the Messiah. Instead, God's sword would take the shape of a powerful general able to sweep over the same lands that were once Assyria and then Babylon and later Persia. So as we catch up now with our text, if you would stand together with me as I read from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she's received double from the Lord's hand, double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So God knew that the people of Judah would be overwhelmed when Assyria was finally defeated, overwhelmed with joy, and probably schadenfreude. That's a fun word to say, right? Say it with me. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. Yeah, so that's a German word. I'm really sad that I can't say many German words because they were eliminated in the group stage. But it's a German word that means the joy you feel watching someone else suffer So Judah felt schadenfreude when Assyria gets wiped out of existence. I will confess that I feel schadenfreude when Carolina loses in any sport. Or when the person who passed me going 90 miles an hour on 95 is pulled over a few miles later. That doesn't happen enough. But no sooner had the people of God rejoiced at the defeat of this monster Assyria, feeling that schadenfreude to its fullest, when all of a sudden... There's another monster, and the one who's even more intent on subduing stubborn Judah. Babylon does what Assyria couldn't. They conquer Jerusalem. They conquer Zion, and they take men and women and children and take them to serve as slaves and workers back home in Babylon. So God's people are now asking some very hard questions. Would the God who rescued from Assyria still rescue from Babylon? Is he still the God who he says he is? For the people of Judah, they're asking, does this exile, this forcible taking of God's people from their land, does that prove that he's unable to save? Unable to keep his promises? Isaiah responds with a resounding no. Yet, we're often asking these same kinds of questions. Will the God who raised Jesus from the dead 2,000 years ago still rescue me from this suffering? Is he able to do what he's promised? When you've been healed from breast cancer only to have it come back, is God still rescuing you? When one unforeseen bill is compounded by yet another repair or a loss of income, is God still rescuing? When sin rears its head in your life or in the life of someone in your family and it has tremendous consequences, is God still rescuing? God has promised to rescue us and he keeps his promises to us. In Jesus Christ. So hear these words of God through Isaiah, his prophet. Comfort. Comfort. So this is actually a command to those in position to provide comfort. So we may initially think uh, this is for fathers and mothers, for home group leaders, for those who are in pastoral ministry. God's saying, comfort my people. Remind them of what's true, of what is coming, of my faithfulness to those I love. This level of comfort is echoed in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Paul reminds the church at Corinth that sometimes God allows suffering so that we would overflow with the ability to comfort those around us with the comfort that we're receiving from the Spirit. For just as Christ's sufferings are ours, so also Christ's comfort is ours. The verb in the original Hebrew is actually a plural imperative. We don't get this when we read it in English, but it's a plural imperative. It's comfort all of you because all of us have the ministry of reconciliation, right? We know this again from Paul's words in the New Testament. All of us are members of the body of Christ, have the ministry of reconciliation. So in a way, God desires for all of us as a priesthood of believers to comfort one another, to remind each other of the gospel every chance we get because we need to hear it. God has won the victory in Christ. Your sin is forgiven. Jesus has rescued, is rescuing, and will rescue. Doesn't that bring you comfort? And this phrase, says your God, in the Hebrew is, again, actually more like God keeps saying comfort. He's not said it once and ceased, but rather God speaks now through his servants continually and through his word always. We need each other. We need God's word. And God also tells Isaiah, and thus tells us, to speak tenderly, which means to speak to the heart. This is something that Pastor Brad seeks to do in all of his engagement with people. And we were reminded of this at that celebration last week, and we're reminded of it whenever Allison gets a chance to brag on him. He speaks to the heart by learning the ways to recognize and address each person with what they need. And that's how God is seeking to speak to you every time you sit down with his word. Every time you gather for a sermon or proclamation of the gospel, God desires to speak tenderly to your heart. God wants to speak encouragement to your heart. So commentator John Oswald says this from this passage. Encouragement is to move someone who might be paralyzed by circumstances To take heart and believe. Encouragement is to move someone who might be paralyzed by circumstances to take heart and believe. Let us speak comfort to the heart and encourage one another. Don't be paralyzed by your circumstances. Take heart and believe what God has said. God has promised to rescue us and he keeps his promises to us in Jesus. However serious God's anger at sin, we never have reason to doubt his love. In my oldest son's case, uh, he knows exactly how to anger me. He's had the most practice of all of them, I guess, because he's the oldest. And yet, as angry as I might get at his behavior, he never has reason to doubt my love for him. And I continually... Try to find ways to communicate my steadfast love to him. So just as this verse has said, God keeps saying how much he loves us. Even when our circumstances attempt to drown out God's voice, God is saying yet again to you this morning, he loves you, he is with you, and he can rescue you. And notice verse 2 in this passage. God is showing unmerited forgiveness, His grace, right? For Israel. It's not that their suffering has like balanced the scales all of a sudden. Rather, God has chosen in His grace to forgive them. So God has not put you in a place of suffering so that He can watch the suffer meter until you've atoned for your own sin. That's not what's happening. And in this text, we're seeing that God has chosen at the appointed time to bring His people back. So similarly, in the fullness of time, God sent His Son to do what you and I can't do: atone for sin. Jesus has already suffered the death that we deserve, that sin brings. So we don't have to. And that is all of work of God, and not of ours. But then here in verses three through five, I hope that uh, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament recognize the language here. Although many of the prophets of God could be described as voices crying out, and even voices crying out in the desert, in the wilderness, John the Baptist was literally a voice crying out in the wilderness, the glory of the Lord is about to be revealed. So when Jesus goes out to see his cousin John and be baptized, we see very clearly that John recognized the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. So God told us all the way back in Isaiah's day that he would show us his glory. What's interesting about this idea is that one way of understanding the glory of the Lord is his presence. The Lord revealed in a specific act or his reputation or his character being proclaimed. So when John was in Jesus' presence in that river, that was the glory of the Lord being revealed. And God is also present with us Now, when we proclaim his goodness, when we bear testimony to what God has done and is doing, when we celebrate his faithfulness, when we act on love towards somebody else, all of that is a part of preparing the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So We talked about this a little bit when I preached two weeks ago, right? Uh, A highway is literally just that. It's a highway that's visible to all. It's not 210, it's not 421. It is a highway that is lifted up and prepared. So what it's saying here, the way that is to be prepared here is a highway through the desert. And as the highway is prepared, it's to be evidence that God is coming to rescue. Everyone would see this road to be reminded that the king is coming. So get that mountain out of the way. Raise that valley up so that everyone can see that the king of kings is on the way. So when visiting kings would travel to a land in the ancient Near East, the way would be prepared for them. The road would be cleared and cleaned. There would be a huge entourage that would be you know, going before them and behind the king. It's very similar to a presidential procession, but even more overt and showy than our secret service are now. Because if the presidential motorcade is coming, you know, they close the streets and put police with lights on in front and behind. Maybe they even have a cool decoy limo like in a movie that also has those little wavy flags. And there's no mistaking that this person is really important, right? But when kings would travel then, everyone was going to know it. The soldiers would announce it. Both by their presence and by their voices, there be the court advisors, the servants, the animals, the flags, the pageantry, make way for the king who is coming. This description of the way being prepared is intentionally there to remind us that the king of kings, he will arrive without fail. He will travel with no difficulty, and he will be undelayed by any hindrances. Nothing can keep God from rescuing you. Not even you. So I only get to scratch the surface of this text. I'm a little jealous that Ricky will get to continue to preach from Isaiah 40 uh, next week because we're going to continue to see how this description of the king who is coming points us directly to Jesus. One day, all will see That God alone is. The text here says that all flesh shall see it together. I mean, God has described reality for us in his word. He's manifested it in his son Jesus, the second Adam, who lived a truly human life. He has promised us that through the power of his spirit, he'll make all things new, even us. Because God is glorified when he rescues Sally Lloyd-Jones notes this in the beginning of her Jesus Storybook Bible. It's one of our favorites to read to our kids. We use it a lot in our children's ministry here. So this is what Sally Lloyd-Jones says. And we've read this before. Many of you will already know it and could probably recite it with me. But no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that's come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Then she continues, every story whispers the name of Jesus. He's the missing piece in the puzzle that makes all the strange pieces fit together. So you can now see the mystery revealed, the beautiful picture. God has promised to rescue us and he keeps his promises to us in Jesus Christ. So as Paul also mentions, again, in his letter to the church at Corinth, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. And then Paul says, that's why we say amen in Jesus' name. Because in Jesus, God's perfectly pleased with us. And he has rescued us from the snares of sin and the sting of death for his glory. Because what we see around us isn't all there is. Because Yahweh himself is coming. Not just a messenger or a prophet. God himself longs to dwell with his people. And God's ultimate plan, as announced even here in Isaiah chapter 40, is not death and judgment, but life and God's presence. So even as we continue to celebrate with hot dogs and games, and your week kicks off as it usually does with your Monday morning cup of coffee or whatever your routine may be, God's continuing to say to you, comfort, I'm coming. When you worry, Jesus rescues. When you do wrong, Jesus rescues. And when you are powerless, Jesus rescues. And all will see how great our God is, the one who rescues. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see beyond just this morning as we've gathered together, but throughout the rest of the day as we continue to worship through fun and as we worship through our week in the ways that we love our families, love our coworkers, and love our neighbors and in the ways that we are good neighbors to those around us. We thank you for the testimonies that our children have already borne to us Singing the songs, singing with those smiles and the light in their eyes of the gospel that they've heard. I pray that many would see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Because you are sovereign and you have told us that you will rescue. We pray that as we continue to respond in song, that you would be glorified. Because you are great and greatly to be praised. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.